It is an incredible honor to be with you all this morning. Almost a year ago when Vance asked me whether or not I would be a part of the conference and he began to share some of the different people he was asking to speak and he was telling me some of the theme of the conference, I believe my thought at the time was, are you absolutely sure that you want me? And it's not that I would love to speak, but you know, when you've got pastors that have, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of people in their congregation, and I'm thinking, man, I've got most of these guys' books on my shelves, and that's books, plural. And I can say with, you know, relative certainty, I've handed in, you know, a couple of solid papers in my life. And the more he began to share about the conference, and the more he shared his heart on it, I knew it was absolutely something that I wanted to be a part of. Whenever we got off the phone, I can remember this question coming to mind, and that is, what am I supposed to share? I, I mean, when you've got a conference that's talking about the kingdom of God, and you've got so many passages that talk about the kingdom, and when you've got a group of pastors that are teaching that are like, you know, kingdom ninjas out here. I mean, I, I think if you were to cut them, they would bleed like people groups and nations and stuff like that. I'm thinking, what do you share in that context? And my mind began to go through just a number of conversations I've had with other pastors. And I began to think through how our conversations usually go. I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but as pastors, it seems like a lot of your conversations are pretty the same. And that is, we kind of talk to begin with about family. We catch up on how the family's doing. And then after that, it moves into the church, and we start talking about church life. And that's kind of the time that people start saying, you know, how many are showing up on Sunday? How many people have been saved? How many people have been baptized? You know how pastors do, Baptists do. We talk about those things. And then we also go through and we start asking questions about, you know, what are the challenges that you're facing in your church? Or, you know, what are some of the things that you're doing in order to see people come to faith in Christ? And it's not long before you begin to find this one question that comes out, and that is people ask, how are you mobilizing your church to be about the kingdom's business? And it seems like almost instantly the conversation turns to programming. And people will say something like this, you know, we've tried this new program. I was at a conference recently, and there was another pastor there, and their church grew just amazingly, and, and there was a great program, and we've just introduced it to our church. And then some other people will say, you know what, there's a program that we did 20 years ago, and God used it back then, and we're pulling it back out now. But I think before we get to a programming question, and although that's great, I think we need to go back and ask one more question. Are we positioned to make a difference? You, you see, our position is essential for effectiveness. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I can remember that my uncle took me deer hunting with him for the first time. And I went out and I was excited about the new trip and excited about what was going to go on. And before we even got out to the woods, he said, now, Paul, this is what you need to know about the gun. And he said, this is what you need to know about sitting in that stand. And he says, you need to sit still and you don't need to move. You need to just wait right there. And he went through all of those safety things. And then he gave me this orange plastic vest. And then he gave me a deer rifle and he took me out to this stand. And I mean, it was early. It was like 5 a.m. type of early out there. And he said, you're going to look off right off to your side. And he says, the deer usually come up in this one area. They've been bedded down for the night. And there's a trail that goes right in front of you. And they walk through this trail and they go out to this field on the other side to eat in the morning. And he says, if you remain alert and if you stay focused, he says, I guarantee you, you'll see deer. Well, that morning I did exactly what he said. I sat motionless. 
about as motionless as you can be when you're freezing to death in a deer stand at 5 a.m. in the morning. I had to go to the bathroom. I was hungry. I wanted to get up and move, but I didn't do any of that. I just sat right there. And sure enough, about an hour later, I hear this little noise off to the side, and there's this deer that comes up off to my left. My heart started pounding so much, I almost didn't know what to do. So I very slowly began to turn. And as I turned, this plastic vest rubbed on the tree behind me. And whenever it did, it made this noise, and the deer stopped and looked directly at me. And I just looked directly at it. I just, I just froze. A few moments later, the deer dropped the head down and began to walk again. And I thought that was my time. So I kind of looked this way, and I moved again, and that vest hit it a second time. And as soon as I did, that deer looked at me, and this time it wasn't taking any chances. It jumped up, and it ran right underneath my deer stand, went right out to the field, and I didn't shoot anything that morning. But here's the point. I was positioned in the right place. About 10 Maybe 12 years later, I went out hunting again with a friend of mine. And on the second time I went out hunting, I'd had, you know, experience at this point. I, I'd been in the woods. I had my own, you know, rifle. I had my own deer stains. I had my truck. You know, I, I looked legitimate as a hunter. I mean, you know, you know you've arrived at a certain point whenever the real hunters at Waffle House like 4 a.m. are no longer laughing at you whenever you walk in. So I knew I'd arrived at something, but I couldn't go out and set my own stand because I had to work late the night before. And I asked this friend of mine if he would go out and he'd set the stand for me. Well, anyway, he took me out there to the stand the next morning. He says, you just need to look right in front of you. And if you do, he says, I guarantee you're going to see some activity out there. About 45 minutes later, sun started to come up. And whenever you're out in the woods, real early in the morning, the sun starts to come up. You're not able to actually make out anything. It's just like shadows and darkness and those types of things. And I can remember the, the shadows began to give way a little bit, but the more I looked, the more confused I became because I started seeing things look like blocks in front of me. And there was this open space, and I didn't really know what to do with that. And I'm thinking, where in the world am I at? And the more the light began to come up, the more I realized where I was. I was about 100 feet off the back of somebody's house. About 10 feet in front of me was a chain-link fence. This fantastic friend of mine was out, you know, hunting trophy buck that morning. He put me out as like a neighborhood sniper right in somebody's backyard. And I can remember thinking to myself, there's a couple of things I need to remember. The first of that is don't ever trust your friend to set your deer stand. And the second one was the position is essential for your effectiveness. You know, it didn't matter if I had at this point 15 years experience or my own gun or my own equipment or if I could, you know, climb a tree like a bobcat. If you're in the wrong place, none of that matters. Our position is essential for effectiveness. This morning, I want to take about the next 20 minutes and share with you a passage that God has been burning into my heart for almost a year. This passage does not talk about the kingdom. It does not mention church planting. It does not speak of mission work. But what it does talk about is being spiritually positioned for God to live through you. And here's what I've noticed over the years. Whenever we're spiritually positioned at the right place, it is amazing how much kingdom activity God will allow us to be a part of. I invite you at this time to go with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter number 5. The book of Ephesians chapter number 5 I want to read verses 15 and 16. I want to speak this morning for just a few moments on the subject of positioned to make a difference. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. 
Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would allow this text to come alive. I pray that it will be something that you sink down deep into our hearts. And God, may you position us spiritually so that you would live your life through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our conference theme is Aspire, Yearning to Join God's Kingdom Activity. And I have a theory. It may be a naive theory. It may be a simple theory, but I've got a theory. And my theory is, I think that most Bible-believing pastors desire to be a part of God's kingdom activity. And the operative phrase there being Bible-believing. I mean, if we genuinely believe in the Great Commission, and if we genuinely believe that Jesus was right when he said, seek first the kingdom of God, if we genuinely believe that the gospel message can still change lives and can still, you know, build families and, and help nations, if we genuinely believe that, then we have a desire to be about God's kingdom activity. It's not a question of whether or not we're going to do it. The question becomes how. How are we to be a part of God's kingdom activity? And that's more than just where do you plug in. It goes to something even much deeper than that. It deals with very practical questions, questions such as, you know, how am I supposed to add anything else to an already hectic ministry schedule? Or, or how can I stretch, you know, the budget that's already tight just to cover a couple of other areas? Or another one is, how do I gather together my people and how do I encourage labor-weary saints to be involved in yet one more thing? It's a lot of those how questions. How do we do that? The reason I love this text is because although it talks about making the most of your time, it never mentions a budget, a busy schedule, or where you're serving. These truths transcend that information. I like the fact that the beginning of this says the word therefore. You all know therefore is a connecting word. It is connecting the information that was in the previous verses to the information that is about to be shared. And in the previous verse, we find that Paul taught believers to walk in love, that's in chapter 5, verse 2, and to walk as children of light, that's in chapter 5, verse 8. He reminds them that they were formerly darkness, but now they are children of light. And I like the fact that he says you were formerly darkness. Not just that you were in darkness, but you were darkness. Darkness was in you. He's not talking about just the environment that you're in. He is also talking about your nature. We were formerly darkness, separated from the life of God. But now that you are in relationship with God, he says, I want to teach you how to walk as children of light. And he talks about the fruit of light in verse 9 saying that it is goodness and righteousness and truth. And he talks about not participating in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but exposing them in verse number 11. He tells us what we're supposed to do, and he also tells us what we're supposed to avoid. And right on the heels of that, he says, therefore, be careful how you walk. The word careful means to observe something with great care or to remain alert. The word walk, it speaks of our pattern of behavior. It's how we live from day to day. He's saying, be careful, remain alert, observe with great care how you walk or how you live from day to day. And then he adds another piece. He tells us that we're not to walk as unwise men, but as wise. 
And that word unwise, it means lacking good sense or acting foolish. In fact, the New Living Translation translates that phrase as, don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Now let's pause for just a moment. If our walk describes how we live from day to day, and he's saying, I want you to walk as wise men, then it only makes sense that wisdom is how we are to live from day to day. You see, there's a misconception that has happened, and that is wisdom is what we need only when we're making the big decisions. You know, only when we're hiring staff or when we're planning out the next message series or when we're asking God whether or not we're to build or not build or whenever we're wondering, do we go to three services or four services or whenever there's a real big problem in the church. At that time, we think that's the time that we pray for wisdom. God, give me your wisdom. Fill me with wisdom. But we often think that, you know, common sense is what we need from day to day. But the challenge of this verse is to walk in wisdom. Let wisdom be what characterizes our life from day to day. So the next question in my mind would have to be, how do we know what is wise versus what is foolish? And you know, the Bible is a great way because the Bible is the best tool that you have on interpreting Scripture. We find in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, that it helps us understand what is a foolish life. And it says it like this, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds. You know, I've heard that passage and I've read that passage so many times. And in some reason in my mind, I always thought when it says, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. I always thought of that fool as boldly proclaiming there is no God. That's not what the text said. The text says the fool has said in his heart. You see, we find that this is more of an internal conviction, but we find that what is internal very quickly becomes external because right after that, it says that they are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds. They are acting according to what they really believe. So a fool is someone who either believes God does not exist or a fool is someone who lives as though God does not exist. But we find that even a person who is in that state is someone who cannot live without a God of some kind. In fact, people inevitably will bring about a God of their own making. So, uh, we find Romans chapter 1 tells us that people create gods of their own making. That is, they begin to elevate themselves into the position of saying, this is what is right and wrong. This is what is good and bad. This is what is profitable and not profitable. They center an entire life around self. So how is it that a person goes from a foolish, self-centered life into a wise and God-acknowledging life? Proverbs 1, 7 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom begins when we're acknowledging God. In fact, moving from foolishness to wisdom is the process of turning from self to God. So let's put all of that together. Our walk is how we live from day to day. We are to remain alert. We are not to be foolish and self-centered, but we are to walk as wise people who are acknowledging God. Verse 15 positions our life to make a difference. But notice what happens after we're positioned in the right way. 
It then says that we are making the most of the time. I want to spend just a moment in verse 16, and there's two key pieces that we need to see, and I've got to share a couple of illustrations, and we'll close out. But here's the first thing I want you to see. Making the most of also means to buy back or to buy out. It's also translated redeeming that time. The word time here is kairos, and it's not just any moment within the flow of time, but rather it is a specifically chosen special moment or season. Uh, Paul used the same word when he was talking to believers in Rome, and he says that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't just any moment, it was a specifically chosen moment in time. It was the right time. Whenever we are walking in wisdom, it says that we are making the most of these specifically chosen wonderful moments of time. Now let's package it all back together. Whenever we are in the habit of remaining alert, and we're not living for self, but we are acknowledging God in His purposes, we are strategically positioned at that moment to buy back some time for God and His purposes. You know, whenever we first started our church in Las Vegas, the first place we met was in a casino. And we weren't trying to be edgy or controversial or anything like that. We went to every school on our side of town, 29 different schools. We went to community clubhouses, and we went to strip malls, and we went to warehouses. We asked anyone who would possibly let us rent space if we could lease space. Everybody turned us down. And the casino actually said yes. On the first morning we were at this casino, we were hauling all of our equipment in, and we caught the eye of some homeless people who were living at the intersection right next to this casino. And they asked us what we were doing, and we told them what we were doing, and they said, can we come to church? We said, we'd love to have you at church. And just like that, we have homeless people that are now coming to our church. About six months later, we moved locations, but we didn't want to leave behind those people that God had brought to us. So either myself or some other people in our church, we would go out and we'd pick them up and we would bring them in. And after we had finished, we'd drop them right back off. Well, on one particular Sunday afternoon, I was dropping off two homeless guys back at this intersection. And I walked, as I was driving away, I can remember looking in the rearview mirror and there was a group of probably 25 or 30 people that were just sitting in this Home Depot parking lot. And I can remember leaving there thinking, God, why is it that we only pick up one or two every Sunday when there's this whole group that's sitting down there? And as soon as I began to pray, here's the thought that came to mind. Go and make disciples of the nations. And instantly this thought was connected to it. You've been asking them to come, but I told you to go. And for the next couple of minutes, I felt myself wrestling with God. And the next several hours, I had this passage going through my mind, and I had this thought going through my mind. And here's the new thought that was in my mind. It seems like God's wanting us to start a church for homeless people. Now, I need to let you know, not only has that never been in my plan, but we were already right in the middle of a new church start. And I'm thinking, is it even right that you start another church when you're currently starting this church? But the more I prayed about it, the more it just kept to sit in my mind. That evening, we had a group of people that were out at our house for a new members class. And as they were there talking, somebody just asked the question, what's God teaching you? What's new that's being stirred in your heart? And I said, this is going to sound strange, but this afternoon God shared this passage with me and this idea came to mind. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I feel like we're supposed to start a church for homeless people. And there were 12 people that attended the class that night. Nine of them said, I've been praying for years for an opportunity to serve homeless people. 
They said, what can we do to help? I said, I've got no earthly idea right now. I don't know anything about it. Just pray at this point, and I'll let you know. The next morning, I got a call from someone out of the Atlanta area. And they said, what's God teaching you? What's new? And I said, this is going to sound strange, but I feel like God wants us to start a church for homeless people. And the person said, that sounds like a place where Jesus would be working. Put me on for $500 a month. I'd like to support that ministry. And I'm thinking, all right, now we have resources coming in. And then all of a sudden, it kind of hit me. I've got a passage, and I've got an idea, and I've got volunteers, and we've got resources, and then it hit me. I don't even know if they want a church. So I drove out to the intersection, and I was talking to the group. I said, would you guys be interested in this? And they said, we'd love to have a church out here. In fact, they said, the reason we don't all go to church every Sunday is because we feel dirty. We talked for just a few moments, and afterwards they said, we'll get the word out if you'll come back this next Sunday. I came back the next Sunday at about 1, 1 o'clock, 1.15 got to this intersection, and when I got there, I found that there was a group that was ready for me. In fact, they had built a cross. They had built a little uh, stage area out of some just wood that they had found, and they had built it up, and they grabbed together all these just crumbled up chairs and five-gallon buckets, and there was this group that was sitting there waiting for me when I got there, and there was this one guy in the group. His name was Spirit, and as soon as I got there, Spirit said, Preacher, I'm glad you're here. But let me tell you why this is never going to work. He said, God called him out of the hills of Tennessee a number of years ago to come out and to save everyone in Las Vegas. And he says, and the reason I can do that and you cannot is because I've already died once and I was reincarnated. And then in front of the entire group, he says, and that's what the Bible's all about, isn't it? It's about reincarnation. And I said, actually, that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches eternal life. He says, are you calling me a liar? I said, well, I'm just telling you that the Bible does not teach reincarnation. And he says, you're no preacher. You need to go back. And about that time, one of the people who was in our, our church, who was also homeless, jumped up in the guy's face. And he said, he goes, you're not going to talk to Pastor Paul like that. And he put his finger like right up here in his nose. And he says, Pastor Paul is a man of God. And he doesn't need to be around your language. I guess it's the thought that counts at that particular moment. I said, Wade, that's okay, man. I said, you know, let's just move on. And I tried to teach, and everything I tried to say, this guy's spirit would say, that's wrong. You're not a bleep, 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 bleep preacher. And, what? and he, it just kept going. And on the third time, this guy, Wade, jumped up in his face, and I literally had to pull him back and to set him down. I said, man, it's okay. It's all right. I knew at that point I was in trouble. I don't know if you guys have ever been in those meetings before when it's not going anything like what you thought it was going to, and the only thing you know to do is to bring it together in a word of prayer. Well, that's pretty much where I was at. I, I just said, guys, let's pray. And as I was praying, I said, Father, I have no idea what it's like to walk a mile in their shoes. I pray that you would give me wisdom. Teach us what we're supposed to do. I said amen, and about that time, a pair of tennis shoes came flying at my head. It was spirit. He had taken off his shoes in my prayer, and he was hurling his shoes at me. And he says, you've never walked a mile in my shoes. Here they are. It's a size 10. I bet they'll fit you. Listen, that moment I knew I was no longer in the south because I'd read in my Bible that the Apostle Paul had been stoned and he'd been whipped and he'd been beaten and starting churches, but I never read anything about the Apostle Paul getting shooed. Well, listen, for the next year and a half, 
myself and some people from our church and people from mission teams, they would come out and we would go down to this intersection every Sunday afternoon from 1 to 2.30 in the afternoon. And over the next couple of years, we went through the Gospel of John. We ended up, we brought hamburgers with us. We brought bottled water. We brought clothes, medical supplies. We brought everything that we knew. And inside of that year and a half period, 13 people came to faith in Christ. We found that several others were reunited with their families. We found that several others were able to get into the mission program. And, and we found that after that year and a half time, the people at that intersection went from a group of 75 down to 30. And just as much as it got started, it was so quick, all of a sudden it ended. Every one of the homeless people in the area was given a warning by the police department that said if they did not vacate within the next couple of weeks that they would be arrested and taken to jail. The police department did exactly what they said they were going to do. They came down, anybody who was still there, they were arrested, they bulldozed the area, and that entire operation came to a close. And here's what I thought at the time. Man, that was a great opportunity. When I look back right now, I see it was a favorable season that was open for just a specific period of time. It was a kairos moment. It was something that in that moment as I was in prayer with God, God helped me to see a need and he, he helped my heart to be alert. And in that moment, we realized there's an opportunity to die to self because, hey, I don't know if you all have noticed, but when you're doing a homeless church, you're not competing against the next homeless church down the road because there's not one. I mean, at that moment, you know, it's not about you. This is an opportunity for God to do something awesome. And we found that as we yielded to God, God used that season to change lives. A couple of weeks ago, myself and our worship leader, Matt, just got back out of Honduras. And we got back out of Honduras, we had an opportunity to go down and to teach on discipleship. And then we had a, an amazing opportunity because we were contacted by a group called TPI in order to help develop a curriculum for discipleship that focuses on the Christ life. And we were down there in order to teach about 30 to 35 people so that they would have an initial group and we would do a pilot program to kind of make sure we had all of our ducks in a row. And as we were talking, we found out that one of the teachers there said there's 2,000 guys that are connected in with this. And we also, we were waiting a little while longer, and the guy who leads that ministry, he asked us to come to Peru because he says, there's this group that has now been coming out, some new pastors of some of these tribes that are isolated up and down the Amazon River, and they're coming out, and they're asking for training. And we're going down to Peru. Will you guys come down with us? And I was sitting in that moment, and I was thinking to myself, God, how is it that a small church plant in the middle of Sin City has an opportunity to invest in a couple thousand pastors in nine countries in Central and South America? How is it that the curriculum that we had an opportunity to write is going to be shared with these isolated tribes up and down the Amazon River? And I was saying, God, how does that happen? And the only thing that could come to mind is, it's not about you. It's not because you did it. It's not because you have it all together. The only reason you're getting in on any of this is because as you're with me, I'll open your eyes to see what I'm doing in the world. And as you have your eyes open, at that moment, you've got a choice. Will you live a foolish life that is self-centered? Or will you live a wise life that is God-focused? Man. 
In the past five years, our church has been able to be a part of starting three churches in pioneer areas. We've been able to work in 19 nations around the world. We've been able to see over 270 people come to faith in Christ. We've been able to partner with different groups in our community, from the police department to the school system to the rescue mission, the Women's Resource Center, Starbucks, UPS, the Urban League, uh, the Las Vegas Wranglers, Three Square. We, we partner where we can because we know it's bigger than us. Let me say, it's not because we're a big church, because I guarantee you we're not. And it's not because we got a lot of money, because I know we don't. And it's not because we get it all right, because there's far more things that seem like they've gone wrong. But all along the way, her prayer is, God, would you use us in a way that's going to make an impact for you and the kingdom? My question for you as we close is this. Are you positioned for God to live through you? Are you in a place right now where God the Father can redeem some time through your life? What are the Kairos moments that are all around you? And by the way, you don't have to be a pastor to get in on this. You don't have to be Southern Baptist to get in on this. This is bigger than all of that. And by the way, when we look back over our life, we might find that it's three moments this week and seven moments next week and ten moments next year. But when you look back after 20 and 30 years, here's what you'll find. It is amazing how much God activity he will let us get in on when it's not about us and it's all about him. And we simply say, God, would you live through us? Thank you, guys.